This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt ends Oklahoma's state of emergency for COVID-19 after more than a year. Stitt's office says he made the decision with new infections and hospitalizations dropping and vaccines getting out to people. This doesn't affect any coronavirus restrictions as all of them had been lifted in March. So Neva, what are the impacts of the governor ending the emergency declaration? Well, I think what we have is uh, in Oklahoma, like we have in a number of other states and, and about a dozen states that will end their uh, declarations at the end of the month. I mean, it basically takes away um, the provisions that were in the in the emergency, which right now are no longer necessary. I mean, many of those were giving state agencies greater freedom to do things like uh, hire additional personnel, you know, do uh, things related to uh, needing the uh, uh, additional resources resources uh, and other emergency matters. But right now, when we look at the numbers, and as the governor said, because Oklahomans, in his words, he described it as used personal responsibility, uh, not only to protect themselves and their families, but the most vulnerable, we've seen the decline. We've also talked about multiple times on the show the fact that we have done, uh, as a state, an excellent job of uh, getting getting our folks vaccinated. Now, approximately 30% of Oklahomans are vaccinated. Uh, and the opportunity is there for any uh, uh, Oklahoman uh, in the age categories to be able to be vaccinated. So that's good news. And I think Dr. Uh, Fry, the uh, health commissioner, uh, this uh, this week, he, he made the statement that uh, we were approaching our new normal. And I think that's what, uh, that I think that's the shift that we're now seeing. Well, I, I is, hope he was knocking on wood when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that, uh, I think we're all optimistic and yeah. I think he's expressing that optimism. But bottom line, um, what what we're going to see more than anything, I think, as a result of some of the shift is just the changing uh, atmosphere in terms of the reporting, uh, the reporting manner, uh, how often and, wh- and what. It won't change the fact that this collection of data will continue. It's just a matter of how it will be disseminated. Ryan. Well, and, you know, the real turning point for Oklahoma was when we had our initial success in the vaccine rollout. And, you know, that's when we really begin to see cases drop, infection rates drop, hospital beds free up. That's got us to this point where we can even start talking about things like a new normal. And, and I feel it. Everybody feels that there's there's exhaustion with covid restrictions. Uh, you know, I get it. I understand it. Um, and when you're in places where most of the folks are vaccinated, uh, you know, you talk about vaccine passports, man, you know, let's let's have some rewards for people that have vaccine passports. We're going to see that in some of these major league games uh, coming up in New York, where uh, they're going to have different sections of the stadium where it's going to be 100 percent capacity for folks that are vaccinated, 30 percent capacity uh, for folks that aren't vaccinated. Giving people incentives like that is important. If we're going to get to that new normal, um, you know, the governor likes to talk about, you know, not letting off the gas. The way to not let off the gas right now is to really double down on our on our vaccine advocacy. You know, the governor did, a, I think, a, a great job of, you know, rolling up his own sleeve and flexing his muscle uh, and, and showing everybody that the vaccine was something to do. 
uh, he really needs to redouble that effort because we've seen a leveling off of, of vaccinations, not just in Oklahoma, but around the country. But we've seen a leveling off, especially in rural areas. And if you look at, I think it was Oklahoma Watch had a good story by zip code on, on vaccination rates. You look at rural areas in Oklahoma and you got a lot of, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. So if we're going to get to herd immunity, folks like the governor need to be out talking about that. The other thing that the governor might consider is maybe some more narrowly tailored uh, executive orders in the future. Um, the economic effects of COVID are going to last long after uh, COVID itself. So some of this emergency declaration has some effects on uh, SNAP beneficiaries. Um, you know, the lowest income Oklahomans are going to need that help. Uh, and then, you know, thinking about things like, um, you know, if, if, there, if a state agency did need to move quickly, that the governor's office gives them that flexibility real fast. But, uh, you know, the new normal is there, but we've, we've got to really uh, double down on vaccination efforts. And I think, you're, I think you're right in terms of the numbers. I mean, when you look at certain pockets in every state, uh, there is a lower vaccination rate. And I think uh, even what we've seen in statistics and in some uh, survey research that I've seen is that there is a segment of the population that absolutely do not intend to get vaccinated. Um, there are some that uh, are still kind of in that uh, I haven't made a firm decision, and those are the folks that I think the education mm-hmm. uh, the education becomes paramount in terms of getting the information out there. But it, at the end of the day, it is that personal decision, and we are going to have folks for a variety of reasons that will choose not to be vaccinated. Meanwhile, we also have public meetings that have to now be open to the public. Ryan, your thoughts on the fact that they can no longer meet virtually? Yeah, well, you know, and I think that you know they're going to still need to take those precautions. There's a lot that we don't know about uh, the the evolution of COVID right now. I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, I think, you know, in, in India right now, they've got half of the world's infections uh, in India. Uh, I think that, you know, Texas A&M University in their laboratory reported a, a more uh, resistant strain of COVID to the vaccine. Um, and so we need to be mindful. We, we can't just, you know, close down, uh, shut down all uh, uh, recognition that this pandemic still exists. Uh, so those those open meetings are going to need to you know take that into account. The legislature is also looking at, um, and the governor may soon have some legislation on his desk uh, that would uh, preserve uh, the the ability to do some sort of virtual meetings for some of these uh, entities. Do you think maybe that because of the COVID that we could have uh, a mixture, and not not the virtual meetings for the people who are actually taking part of the meeting, but maybe virtual meetings for the public to view in? Well, and I think I think that is an evolving conversation because we have seen the use of virtual mm-hmm. be successful during during the uh, kind of the high water mark in in the COVID uh, in the COVID year that we've just experienced. So I think that there will be at least a uh, because there's more of an awareness and more of a capacity and, a, and an ability to do this that we'll see more conversation about it. And I think it will be uh, everyone will have to make the best judgment call based upon all of the information at the time. The Tulsa Race Massacre Committee is urging Governor Stitt to veto a bill to ban the teaching of what's being called critical race theory. House Bill 1775 prohibits teaching subjects which might make students feel discomfort, guilt, or anguish, and prohibits higher education students from taking part in any kind of mandatory gender or sexual diversity training or counseling. Ryan, how could this measure impact learning in Oklahoma? Well, and the, the Tulsa Race uh, Commission is is one of you know several groups uh, that have called on the governor to veto this legislation. You know, I feel like uh, every other tweet on Twitter right now is somebody calling on the governor to veto this, and a lot of them are educators or administrators administrators at school concerned about the effect that this will have on their ability to talk about our sometimes difficult, uncomfortable, or horrific histories as a nation or as a state. 
Now, you know, I'll say that it's, it's wrong to, for, for folks, you know, because there, there are some out there that want to ignore our progress, right? And I think that it's wrong for people to ignore the progress and the remarkable accomplishments in our, our distant and our near past. Um, and I think it's fundamentally a defeatist and counterproductive exercise to do so. But that history isn't complete. That remarkable history isn't complete without some context. And that context is sometimes horrific. Sometimes it's appalling, you know, whether that's our original sin of slavery, whether it's our, our foundational documents that treated black Americans as three-fifths of a person, uh, a terror that we've orchestrated beyond our shores in Vietnam or in the South Pacific uh, or in Iraq. I mean, those, those are all parts of, uh, of who we are as Americans. And we don't have to look any further than our own backyard in uh, Oklahoma uh, and in Tulsa to see you know, thousands of black Oklahomans massacred by their, their neighbors and by their government, uh, and to be able to talk about that. That's, to, to deny that is to live in a fantasy land, and those facts are uncomfortable, and they do and should evoke some anguish in us, but progress uh, can't happen if we, if we ignore that. And so I think that the governor can look at this legislation, because there's stuff in there that, that I think we can all agree on, you know, that, that teachers shouldn't teach that one person is superior to another person uh, on account of their race uh, or their gender. Um, but to look at that language that talks about discomfort and anguish and the, the huge category of things that fall into that, um, you know, it takes out a huge chunk of our history to talk to students. I think the governor can look at that and say, I agree in, in theory with this legislation, uh, but this goes too far, uh, and it's it's too broad uh, and too poorly defined, and he can veto it on the, on that grounds. Neva. Well, I think you know, what we have is this larger discussion of critical race theory, which is this it has really been kind of injected into the uh, American discussion very recently, and it's really it's an acad- it started as an academic movement among uh, civil rights activists and and scholars and in in, in higher ed. Uh, institutions across the country, and really, it's it's an attempt to um, just r- kind of reconstruct the conversation on history, and really, it it just challenges the mainstream um, kind of the mainstream notion of how to uh, how to teach these uh, how to teach these uh, things that are part of our history. And I don't think I mean I think the thing that's missing in the conversation is that it is not about uh, this versus that I mean, it's not a situation where we're not going to talk about the Tulsa uh, race massacre. We're not going to talk about uh, slavery. We're not going to talk about the Civil War. We're not going to talk about all of these things um, in context of the historical perspective uh, for the country or a world, you know, history perspective. And so I think that I think that they've they've sensationalized and it's become highly charged. I think what we saw in the legislature is kind of a step back and 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 a a a statement being made regrettably along party lines, made it a partisan conversation, which is much of what uh, we've seen nationally. It's become a highly charged partisan conversation that really is not relevant to the whole issue of teaching these subjects. It's just how people want to uh, put the spin on it up front and try to uh, challenge some notion that everything we've done in the past has been wrong in terms of how to uh, how to explain history, how to, how to uh, delve into the things that are important for us to know as a people about our culture, about uh, things that uh, uh, historically are um, major events in the in the life of this country. So I think it's one of those things. Hopefully, uh, we'll have a conversation about it and move on because I don't think it. I just don't see the relevance of it in the bigger picture because we're not. It's not an issue of we're going to take away something. It's an issue of how we're going to discuss it. In my opinion. But when you're talking about this bill, when it says a student would feel discomfort, guilt 
guilt or anguish. That seems so vague that any child go, well, I don't want to go to class because I feel discomfort, guilt, or anguish. Well, and and for decades and hundreds of years, I'm sure if we had made that statement and tried to uh, uh, distinguish how students in a classroom felt, we could make the same argument. I think it's about creating curriculum. It's about creating an environment where the teacher and the student in the classroom have the opportunity to learn. And uh, so when you start, you know, when you start again, creating this highly charged and you know rhetoric that confuses people more than it explains anything i think it's very difficult so they're going to have to sort through it but i think at the end of the day this is more uh, would appear to be more a philosophical statement about the larger context of trying to um, make a statement about critical race theory as it is being uh, talked about and as it is being advocated from a national perspective more than here in Oklahoma. You know, one critique of critical race theory is that it uh, ignores nuance. Um, and if you look at this bill, it goes, you know, so it, it's, a, you know, we don't, we don't like critical race theory because it ignores nuance. It, you know, it says that, you know, there's this uh, assumption that critical race theory uh, says that if, if you're, you're white, that you're inherently racist or you're inherently white supremacist and, you know, ignores the nuance of, 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 of an individual white person or a group of white people, right? Well, this goes the other direction and takes nuance out on the other side and says, you know, well, if, if this could be potentially uh, uh, discomforting to a child, uh, we're not going to teach that. And I think that um, when you say uh, any student can say that, what will probably more than likely happen is a parent. You know, uh, you know, we'll we'll see some curriculum, and you know, this very broad, vague language will make it uh, more likely that parents, you know, show up in court, and, and teachers have to worry about that. They have to worry: Am I going to step on some student's feelings here, and then end up, uh, you know, having to defend my actions in, in court, or a school's going to have to defend those actions in court? Uh, and I'll just I'll close with uh, Bailey Perkins, a good friend of mine, wrote an amazing op-ed in, in the Oklahoma, uh, talking about the the impacts and the effects of this, and the, the necessary. Uh, the necessity of teaching our actual complete history, uh, along with all of that nuance uh, in the Oklahoma. And I encourage folks to go read her op-ed. You know, talking about the complete history, I think, and talking about parents, I mean, let's face it. I mean, parents already have uh, the ability to have input about what's going on with their child in a classroom, just the same as if they uh, decide to uh, not let a child go on a, a school trip for whatever reasons. I mean, the the, parent, the parental involvement as well as the teacher involvement uh, with the students engaging in these conversations and in this learning process has to be collaborative. And I think that's, uh, as long as that takes place uh, in at the local level, uh, we see less of this being a big issue when we talk about something that we impose on the conversation such as critical race theory. The battle between Governor Stitt and the tribes is hitting the streets. Earlier this week, the Department of Transportation announced it was delaying construction at I-35 and Highway 9 in Norman. The $17 million project was going to get $10 million from the Chickasaw Nation to help its funding, but Transportation Secretary Tim Gatt says he needs to consult with the governor before proceeding. Neva, why this change in ODOT having to check with the governor on road improvements? Well, first of all, the governor now hires and fires <laughs> the uh, position that uh, Tim Gantz is in. So that's number one. And I think, that, you know, I think we're talking the politics of this. I mean, uh, we have uh, T.W. Shannon, a, a commissioner uh, that uh, has basically taken on the governor on this issue. Uh, someone that, uh, let's give the political backdrop to this, someone that is still being highly speculated, might be a political candidate might run for governor and challenge uh, Kevin Stitt in a primary next year. So you've got that 
political drama compounded by the fact that you have a situation where uh, you have these projects that have been going on for two decades where uh, uh, you have the uh, partnership with the uh, tribes on road projects and in the last 10 years I think there have been uh, two dozen or more uh, highway projects that uh, that we've seen take place and in that uh, we've seen millions upon millions of dollars uh, that have been partnered from the tribes with the state to make these uh, road road projects a reality so um, I think they've got to get back to the to the specific uh, uh, issue at hand and decide what they're going to do it was part of the uh, the eight-year uh, uh, plan it's something that uh, I think everyone had an expectation would happen and now that it's kind of gone off the rails and it seems to be a fight between a commissioner and the governor uh, with the uh, frankly with the uh, <laughs> the agency head sandwiched in the middle on this uh, I I think most people step back and say let's get everybody to the table and get this resolved Ryan well and you know this is again as, as Neva said the the governor's ability to hire and fire uh, the uh, the head of the ODOT and you know you, he's got five votes on the commission uh, which you know gives him a majority on the commission and so you know those are I think um, you know those are you know, the real fallout of this in, increased enlargement of uh, executive powers under Governor Stitt and so uh, of course whenever I think whenever you do that I mean there was there's a sense of when the governor is asking to do that 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 this was about accountability you know that, that we needed to have executive oversight and we needed to have more accountability in these state agencies and, and really what we've seen now is that it creates the politicization or at least the, the the appearance of it you know sometimes whether it's real or not you know it creates this sense that politics are driving these decisions and here it's hard to ignore that fact that that's probably what's happening i mean you've got an eight-year road plan uh that that odot is woe to uh to deviate from and all of a sudden you've got this project that uh, yeah of course it's going to uh, benefit the chickasaw nation but it's also going to benefit everybody that drives up and down i-35 and and uh you know deals with that highway nine east inter- uh, uh exit off of i-35 um, you know, that's going just going to an OU basketball going game. Going to an OU basketball, you know, uh, you know and the, the, the Highway 9 West exit. You know, those are those are big interchanges there that we all benefit from improvements to. And so, um, you know, the I, I agree with Neva that what we saw um, with this meeting was was possibly a, a foreshadowing of what Governor Stitt may face, uh, you know, in 2022 as a primary opponent. T.W. Shannon would be a formidable opponent. Uh, and, you know, the governor's biggest political liability uh, for his entire uh, term in office has been his, uh, his lack of willingness, I think, to uh, strike a new relationship with the tribal governments in Oklahoma after some initial feuds. And, you know, it's just now it's just one fight after another. He's never really paid any consequence for that. You know, the consequence to that it, it most likely would be a Republican primary challenger that receives a lot of uh, funding and support from the state's tribes. T.W. Shannon it seems a pretty natural uh, uh, person to, to fall into that role. Well, and you're right. I mean, this is a continuation of the governor's troubles with his relationship with the tribes. And, you know, and T.W. Shannon in that meeting uh, earlier this week, I mean, he basically said people are not going to partner with people they don't trust. I mean, again, elevating this whole issue of if you come to the table, you make a deal, uh, then everybody needs to live up to their end of that, uh, in, it, live up to the end of that deal. And uh, this is another instance where there's been a pullback and, and, uh, and we're seeing uh, the governor, you know, basically uh, at this point, uh, take up, kind of stop the whole 
thing and and uh, dead in its tracks and try to decide what what happens uh, going forward it will be fascinating to watch because uh, the rhetoric has certainly been amped up on both sides and I think uh, I think we've got a situation where again we talk about things being highly politically charged now we have uh, this infused into ODOT infused into the whole transportation question and the spill-off could be other projects it could be many other things that are that are on the table and uh, we'll just have to wait and see because the legislature is still in session uh, the budget hasn't been uh, you know hasn't uh, been um, uh, completely uh, kind of hammered out by all of the parties so there's a lot of things that kind of hang in the balance in addition to what we're talking about with this the state house and senate passed their respective district maps in the 10-year practice known as redistricting the new boundaries were crafted before the u.s census bureau released its official numbers from the 2020 population count however the measures passed both chambers by overwhelming bipartisan support neva what are your thoughts on these new maps i think th- i think they have done a an excellent job they started early in this in the session uh even back uh, prior to session starting uh beginning to have the conversations beginning to be out uh, in the districts uh, across all of the congressional districts having having conversation having open meetings where people could give their input so it's been a process not only for public uh, dialogue but it's been a process where all lawmakers have had input and I think that's what we saw with only two house members both Republicans uh, uh, that uh, voted against it one senator Democrat voting against it but I think what we have is bipartisan support for this because everyone, even Democrats who don't necessarily like the process, don't like the fact that uh, that the lines and, and some of their views were not uh, were not redrawn to be more competitive. Nevertheless, everyone had input, and I think that's what we've seen and talked about in uh, in in prior. Uh, redistricting times is that the process has been solid. It has, uh, it has, uh, even when it's been taken to the courts, it has uh, been upheld. And I think we'll see that again. I mean, there wasn't really that much uh, sway. I mean, there were a few, there were a few changes that now have been talked about. A couple of districts, uh, new districts uh, that have come about. But given the population shift only being a couple of hundred thousand uh, mm-hmm. over the past decade, it wasn't as monumental a task. As we that as we would see in states like Texas or Florida, where they've had such incredible growth, so I think the long and the short of it is we have to uh, give a, an a, a in my view to lawmakers for the good job that they've done to this point. They're going to have to wait though to finalize it until they get those final census numbers that they're now saying are still a few months away. So it'll require them, no doubt, to come back in special session sometime early this fall and make it uh, and 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 vote it and make it uh, uh, the final the, the final look that they will use for elections next year. Ryan, you were in the legislature when the 2010 redistricting was going on, I believe. And so it was a, there's a lot less controversy now than there was back then. Yeah, well, and I think that even uh, as, as uh, Neva said, you know, Senator Kay Floyd, the Democratic leader uh, in the Senate, you know, she doesn't like the process. Uh, Democrats, uh, by and large, would prefer an independent redistricting commission. They, they would like to see uh, legislators not in a position of drawing their own uh, uh, their own legislative districts. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, Cheryl Lovelady, uh, has has said, and I think you know, other folks, have, you know, David Glover says this all the time. Uh, you know, voters should choose their legislators, not the other way around. Uh, and that's, I think that that's true. But when we have the process that we've got, I mean, you saw overwhelming. You know, Senator Floyd said that's why you saw Democrats voting for this is because if we don't like, even though we don't like the process and we wish it were different, the outcome you know, seems about as fair as we're going to get 
uh, you know, with, with the current process. You're right, they're going to come back and fall into special session. Uh, I don't think anybody's excited about that, but it's, <laughs> it's just going to have to happen. Um, and, you know, the, there are complaints. You know, Senator Young, uh, the, the lone Democrat that voted against it in the, in the Senate, made some really important marks, uh, remarks about uh, gerrymandering. And I think that, you know, uh, in, in my estimation, if, uh, if we want to end things like gerrymandering, uh, if we want to end things like these non-competitive partisan districts where races are decided in primaries and, and not in general elections, uh, then it's it's really hard. Even with an independent redistricting commission, I don't think that that gets us there. I think that you got to think bigger and bolder, and you got to think about you know, if you want real uh, you know, in, increased representation in Oklahoma, you got to move away from things like single member districts where you've got one legislator for one district, and move to a system of proportional representation where you have multiple legislators for a particular district, and then you have a, a wider range of voices from from uh, regions around the state. Um, but you know, this is this is gonna it's gonna pass now, and, and in the fall when they come back in special session, uh, depending on those final twenty twenty numbers, I, you know, I think we'll see uh, maybe some small modifications. But what we're looking at right now is pretty close to what I imagine the final version will be. Do you think there will be a lot of fighting? They do have to do the congressional seats. Do you think there will be? But there's still we still only have five, so yeah. it's not like we lost any or gained any. Yeah, nobody has to go up against anybody. I mean, that's right. that's something other states are facing. I mean, it, you know, I, you know, think about those state legislatures that have to draw members of their own party in congressional districts into competitive races with one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's you know, one of the one of the principles of drawing these lines is to try to not pit incumbents against each other. That didn't happen. Uh, I think, you know, Senator Ken David's uh, district would have been the only, but she's termed out. So, right. And uh, that district's actually being moved to, to the Oklahoma, Oklahoma City yeah. Metropolitan. Yeah. So no incumbents facing each other. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that, again, we don't have to lose any. We, we did in 2000. We lost one. And that, I remember the, the headache that caused for everything. Right, right. But do you think it's going to be a fairly simple process when they come back for special session that they go, okay, pretty much keep the maps as they are, or will they have to tweak some? But. I think the tweaking will take place, but I don't think there's going to be any dramatic shifts, and I think that's the good news. I mean, uh, and I think, again, the to talk about how this process takes place, this is, by and large, the process that most states uh, use. I mean, uh, legislators uh, uh, come in once every 10 years and have to go through this process, and I think uh, it has become much, uh, much more refined, thanks to the scientific uh, uh, aspect to it of being able to do so much of this in computer modeling and be able to uh, uh, take the tedious task of <laughs> what it was uh, decades ago when it was uh, pencil and paper and and, uh, and adding machines. So we're, we're in a much better place on that. Abacus and I think it that. does help the dialogue because it's more about making districts make sense, uh, not try to gerrymander these wild districts to just try to have someone be able to hold on. I mean, I think the district represent uh, allow for the people inside those districts to be well represented um, and change will take place when people have an opportunity to uh, have competitive primaries and general elections uh, it's up to folks to decide to run and then it's up to the voters to decide to go to the polls which to, in my mind still remains the bigger issue than any of this because we've got to do a better job of of um, educating people and creating a, an environment where they believe it is more important to go to the polls than many of them do now. Neva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.